Happy New Year and welcome to our, uh, our January luncheon. I'm Rich Wagner with AT&T. And on behalf of myself and our program, my co-chairs for the Programs Committee, Molly Ellingson with Herman Miller and Rob Weatherall of Oracle, we want to thank you for joining us today. Our programs team is really excited and looking forward to bringing fresh content that is aligned with blurring the lines, transcending boundaries, Cornet Global's theme for the 2017 slate of summits. We'll lead off our February program, which will focus on attracting, retaining, and motivating the next generation of workforce talent. Entitled Vying for Millennial Talent, this program will feature Nancy Harris, a respected and accomplished leadership coach and HR consultant, and the University of Illinois team of students who won the Cornet Global Academic Challenge at last fall's Philadelphia Summit. <laughs> My fellow board member, Steve Monaco, will be our moderator. And although you may have seen or read other tidbits about how to attract millennial talent, we think this one offers a unique twist in that you'll hear about millennials from millennials. So we hope you'll join us for next month's program. Please continue to monitor our chapter website and email blasts for updates as we finalize our slate of 2017 programs. Today's program is being podcast and posted to the Cornet website. If you have your MCR, you'll receive one continuing education credit for each luncheon you attend, and there's a sign-up sheet near at the registration desk. As usual, we encourage your feedback, and surveys will be distributed during today's question and answer period, please take a few minutes to share your comments. Today's topic is our annual economic forecast. This time every year, and especially coming off the recent election, everyone is waiting to hear what's next for the economy. So we have back by popular demand, Scott Brave and Rick Mattoon, our favorite senior economists and economic advisors with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. So please join me in welcoming Scott and Rick to the stage. All right, uh, well thank you for having me back again. I was trying to remember what year this is. I think it's four or five, but Rick's got a couple on me. Um, so I thought I'd start this year and, and just kind of pick up where I left, left off last year. I'll start talking about the, the short-term outlook first for the U.S. economy and then a little bit more about medium-run trends as well and then use that to put uh, the current monetary policy in perspective. Okay, so I think uh, last year at this time I came here and I said 2016 is likely to look a lot like 2015 looked like. Uh, and in many respects that was true. At least it started off looking a lot like 2015 ended. Uh, though we saw a little bit of a pickup in growth towards the end of the year. The Q3 uh, GDP growth number that we got was almost 4%. That's a pretty strong number. We haven't seen a number quite that strong in, a, in quite a while. Now, if you, uh, if you look at the graph I have here, though, most consensus forecasters or blue-chip forecasters expect growth to pull back a little bit in 2017, something to more like 2.25%, 2.25%, which is a little bit above trend, so continued progress, but not that 4% number that we saw in the third quarter. If you dig a little bit deeper into the data, you can kind of see why they expect this or where this is coming from. Uh, that third quarter number in particular was boosted by a temporary surge in net exports, soybean exports of all things, uh, which is kind of an unusual thing to be talking about. Uh, but that contributed, along with inventories, about a full percentage point to that 4%. So 
So you strip that out, you get something a little more like 3%, which is still a good number. <clears throat> but underlying that is most of that has been coming from the consumer. And I think that's something I stressed last year. As it's, uh, the strength of the consumer is really what carried us in 2016. Uh, there's a lot of reason to expect that to continue, and I'll go into some of the reasons for that. Uh, one of the things that's kind of been a headwind that's been holding us back is business investment, though. Business investment in 2016 was actually fairly weak. Uh, contributed very little um, positive note to, to GDP growth last year. And that's probably the big wild card. If I had to pick something this year to focus on, it would be that sector, and I'll explain why. Uh, so if we look at this chart here, this is just a little bit more detail on the consumer situation. So consumer spending growth pick, strengthened in 2016. Uh, consumers ended the year very confident. Consumer confidence was at a multi-year high. Uh, balance sheets for households have really recovered quite a bit since the recession. And the consumer situation overall continues to be propelled forward by strength in the labor market. We continue to average um, positive job growth in 2016, about 180,000 jobs per month, which is a pretty good number, uh, a slightly above trend number, enough to continue to put downward pressure on the unemployment rate, which now it's slightly below 5%, is uh, a level that we haven't been at in quite a while. And there's good reason to expect that the, the labor market will continue to strengthen in 2017. We'll continue to see some improvement there. If you look at the underlying dynamics, things like the hiring rate or the quits rate, uh, they continue to trend upward. The growth has slowed a little bit, which is kind of what you would expect as we start to see an unemployment rate that's so low. Uh, but still progress is being made there. Now, the quits rate in particular is something that I think uh, I'd like to point to. It's a pretty good leading indicator of labor market health. Uh, when people are willing to quit their job, it's usually because they're going to a better job or a better paying job. Uh, job prospects are improving. Mm -hmm. So that rising back to near pre-recession levels is a, is a pretty good sign moving forward. And while we haven't seen a whole lot of wage growth yet or overall compensation growth, we are starting to see some signs of that, that popping up. Uh, we're definitely starting to trend upward from this sort of 2% level that we've been hovering at closer to a 25 to 3% uh, level, which would be more typical of a, of a of healthy labor market. The other way to see this is if you look at these labor underutilization measures that the Bureau of Labor Statistics likes to, uh, to, to publish. Then a typical one is obviously the unemployment rate. Everyone knows the unemployment rate. That number comes out at number below 5%. Uh, has a lot of meaning to it. It means we're, we're really starting to squeeze out a lot of the slack in, in the labor market. Uh, but these other measures that they produce, broader measures, which maybe don't always get as much attention, uh, they're useful as well. And they kind of tell a slightly different story than the traditional unemployment rate. Uh, so this graph here on the right-hand side aims to sort of give you a, a fuller picture of, of the current labor market situation. That dark black line is the traditional unemployment rate. And you can see it, it's pretty much back to pre-recession levels. But if you start taking into account these marginal workers on, uh, on the, in the labor force, these discouraged workers that might have left because they, they had trouble finding a job, uh, you take account of people that are working part-time for what they call economic reasons. So these are people that are working part-time. They prefer to be working full-time, but they can't find full-time employment. These broader measures of labor underutilization, they're not quite back to those pre-recession levels. If you look at that top shaded area there, that number just below 10%, um, that's still a little bit elevated from sort of the eight, seven and a half to eight percent level we would have seen for that statistic prior to the recession. There's still some elements of the labor market where there is slack, and, and there's still some role to be played there by monetary policy, and I'll, I'll talk about that shortly. 
Uh, but the other good thing on the consumer situation is not only did we see the household improvement really manifest itself in spending, but we also started to see it come through a little bit more in the housing market as well. It's still the case that the vast majority of the recovery has been pretty well concentrated in the multifamily housing market. You can see starts and permits here on the right-hand side have pretty much come back to pre-recession levels there. On the single-family housing market, still well off those levels. But we did see a little bit of an acceleration, a little bit of the improvement. Uh, it's been a slow and steady recovery, and there are some underlying structural factors uh, that I'll discuss in a, in a little while that kind of continue to hold back that sector. But overall, this was another area that it's, it's trending up in 2016, and reason, good reason to expect it to continue to. Now, the weak side of in 2016, and potentially at least into early 2017, has been business spending. Um, businesses pulled back quite a bit on spending on equipment. Uh, you can see this in the left-hand side graph. This is non-defense capital goods, excluding aircraft, just because they tend to be very lumpy and volatile. These tend to be a very good uh, forward-looking indicator when you're looking at new orders here, or the, the blue line here, shipments, tends to be a very good current indicator of business spending. You can see it tailed off quite a bit in 2016, uh, in line with the GDP data I showed you. Now, the other side of the graph, though, tells a little bit different story. That's non-residential private construction spending. And beside a, a little bit of a lull in early 2016, this is something that picked up quite a bit. Um, the commercial real estate markets, the activity there is, is certainly, in, in, here in Chicago, most certainly as well, um, picked up over the course of the year. Uh, on balance, this still sort of balances out to sort of weak business investment uh, spending going forward. Uh, but this is also an area of a lot of uncertainty at the moment because of the fiscal policy situation. Uh, I won't go into too much detail on, on that. I think there's, the specifics of that are still really yet to be worked out. Uh, but I will talk a little bit about what you might expect in this area this, this year and how policy might figure into that. Now, that's a lot of data. And so at this point, I usually like to step back and sort of how can you summarize all these things and kind of make sense of them with one number. Uh, the good thing here is we publish an index at the Chicago Fed, our National Activity Index, and we've been doing this for almost 15 years now. Uh, this, this number is really meant to summarize all these monthly indicators, all the data that we're inundated with on a regular basis, down to one number to give you a sense of where we stand relative to historical averages. And so the idea here is a, a zero value for the index is sort of consistent with a U.S. economy that's at its historical trend rate of growth. Uh, I think I've used this this terminology before, kind of think of this in the Goldilocks terminology. Zero would be like the porridge that's just the right temperature. That's sort of over the longer run where you would expect a trend to. Positive values of the index then indicate an economy that's starting to get hot. The porridge is, is uh, the temperature is rising. As it gets too hot above that plus 0 0.7 line there, that's tend to, that tends to be uh, the, the case where you generate inflationary pressure, sustained inflationary pressure. If it gets too cold, the other side of the coin here, this negative 0.7 line, that tends to line up quite well with recessions. And you can see that the recovery that we had from a very deep and, and long uh, recession has really been a quite mild one. We've never really been too far above trend or below trend throughout this period. And in 2016, we kind of just were a little bit below by this measure, but close enough, consider it sort of right around trend growth. Though Despite this weak recovery that we've had, it's actually been enough to pretty much squeeze out most of the, the slack that's left in, in, the, in the economy 
uh, from the Great Recession. And the one way to see that is actually if you can compare our GDP against what the Congressional Budget Office is publishes as potential GDP. You can think of potential GDP as being sort of the level of output that the U.S. would be producing if we were making full use of our productive resources, if there was no slack in labor markets and uh, all capital was being used to full capacity. Uh, you can see here the red line, their current estimate uh, of potential compared to the blue line, there's a very small gap between the two, and this output gap has been closing pretty consistently for the last several years, and we're getting close to the point at which it will be fully closed. Now, the interesting to keep, thing to keep in mind here, though, is this is an estimate. The red line is something that we have to come up with, and it's, it's something that can change over time. You can see the green line, for instance, is what the CBO projected only eight years ago. Uh, quite a big difference. If we were still judging things relative to that benchmark, there would be a huge gap. So it raises the question as sort of why does the CBO think that the, the potential has come down so much? And that helps me seg into sort of the medium-run outlook, what's driving that for the U.S. The short answer is productivity, and I think I can't emphasize this enough today. This is probably the, the biggest um, uncertainty in the, in the medium-run outlook for the U.S., Lower average productivity growth translates directly into lower potential GDP growth. And what we've seen since the late 90s, early 2000s is exactly that, much lower average productivity growth. Now, measured relative to the 90s, it looks considerably lower. That was a bit of a special period for obvious reasons. Uh, measured relative to the sort of average over 1973 to the mid-90s, we don't look so quite so far off of that. Uh, so it's important to keep in mind what the drivers are of this. Some is coming off of just a very unusual high productivity period, uh, but some of it is also some changing uh, underlying structural forces that are pushing us towards lower productivity growth. So this graph here aims to break down different um, contributors uh, to, to this phenomenon. It's actually uh, from a, a paper that was published by the San Francisco Fed. So you can think of productivity growth as being driven by essentially three things. Uh, here the, the chart calls it labor quality, which is really sort of the, the skill of the labor force, actual educational attainment of the labor force. Capital deepening, which is sort of the cumulative impact of investment, uh, building up the capital stock over time. And TFP, which is really just short for technical progress. This is the kind of stuff that we really benefited from uh, in, in the mid-90s to early 2000s. You can see here, if you take this 73 to 95 period and kind of compare it to the 2004-2016 period, or 2004 to 2010, they don't look that different on average, either overall or in the components. But the last seven years, things have changed a little bit, and a big part of that has actually been the capital deepening part. Uh, this weakness in business investment is starting to accumulate over time and have effects on the capital stock. And if you dig deeper into the data and see sort of where this is coming from, a sizable chunk of it can actually be tied back to sort of the missing recovery in the housing market. In fact, this, this here is data that shows sort of an investment net of depreciation uh, when you account all forms of investment, residential, non-residential, and consumer durables. Uh, that's the black line in the graph. And then the components are, are shown here by the colored bars. If we had, had experienced a normal recovery in residential investment coming out of the recession, over half of the gap that we see now from pre-recession levels would be gone. Um, now consumer durables are a big part of that as well. They tend to be quite correlated. You build a new house, you've got to buy appliances. 
So if I add that in there, it's even, even more the case. Uh, so at least half of this is coming from the, this very slow recovery that we've had in the housing market. The other half is coming from something very different. That's coming from the non-residential side of the economy. That's very much indicative of what I showed you with business spending on equipment and software. Um, and that's, I think, like I said, the big wild card going forward. I don't have a whole lot of time to, to discuss all the details there, but that's something to keep in mind in 2017 because much of the fiscal policy discussion that's out there is really sort of centered around how do we spur investment. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, though, is at this point, a lot of what's been discussed is uh, speculative in nature, and it, it engenders some uncertainty. So until we kind of know more uh, certain what kind of policies are going to be pursued, uh, that could actually have a dampening effect on investment. It tends to be the case that when you see elevated policy uncertainty, you see businesses pull back on investment. The left-hand side graph here actually demonstrates that using an index that's produced by some economists from the uh, Stanford University, actually. Uh, you can see quite clearly that net investment in the non-residential sector and policy uncertainty, according to their index, are, are negatively correlated. So in the short term, at least, we might continue to see weak business investment, even if uh, businesses are confident that in, in the medium run, many of these policies will spur them to increase um, either their labor force or, or um, increase the capital stock. But what I'd like to focus on a little bit more today is actually the residential side of the economy and some of the structural things that are happening there, because those same structural things are showing up in other places as well. So if you look at the right-hand side here, you can see residential net investment uh, shown relative to household formation. And what I mean by household formation is this is the rate of growth of, of the number of households, the total number of households in the U.S. economy. You can think of households being formed over time for many reasons. Right, so um, young people leave their parents' home, they go out, they get a, a new dwelling, that's a new household that's measured by census. Uh, young people get married, have a child, that's another reason why a new household may be formed. And what we've seen actually, let me go back real quick, is uh, residential net investment pretty much tracks household formation. It makes sense, right? Let fewer households being formed, you need fewer, fewer homes. And so this very slow, protracted recovery in the single-family housing market matches up quite well with sort of the demographics of the underlying structural forces that we're seeing um, driving that. And we all know that a lot of these seem to be ongoing. They don't seem to be very short-run phenomena. Some of this has bounced back from the recession. Some of it was driven by, by the recession itself, but some of it also seems to be a longer-run um, trend. And so the, this, the, these things in the news where you see millennials living with their parents for longer or delaying having children, they do show up in the data, and they are definitely having an effect. It's something to keep in mind that that recovery in housing that sort of you may never get back to what you had before. There's sort of a new normal there. Now, the other place that you're seeing demographics really have an effect in sort of the medium-run trends for the U.S. is in the labor market itself. But in this case, it's on the opposite age of age spectrum, opposite side of the age spectrum. Here, it's the baby boomers and the retirement, um, that protracted um, um, retirement phase that we're entering into here. Uh, that's actually having quite a bit of an effect on the sort of the trend or long-run level of employment that you might expect the U.S. economy to operate at. So th this chart here is a little bit of a redepiction of what I showed you earlier. You can measure things in terms of output and I'll put potential relative to its actual level, but you can also measure things in terms of employment. So here on the left-hand side, that trend is sort of like the, the potential um, level of employment. 
the red line is then the actual level of non-farm payroll employment. It can, you can see here too, the gap between the two has is, is become quite small. We are closing those resource gaps that were left in the wake of the recession quite quickly. Sort of, these are my estimates here based on some of my research, but that gap about uh, currently is about 320,000 jobs. So at the current pace of job growth, that's something that would be closed by the end of the first quarter of this year. Now you should notice though that there are kind of two ways to close this gap. That red line can continue to recover. We can continue to see um, pickup in job growth coming out of a, a very deep recession, but the trend can also be coming down as well. And that trend coming down that we estimate is actually very closely tied to labor force participation. And this is where the demographics and the uh, baby boomers come into play. Uh, labor force participation has been trending lower for quite some time now. It's just now, I think, starting to be talked about more regularly. But really, this trend has been going on since the late 90s, early 2000s. Labor force participation peaked around that time as sort of decades-long um, period of time where women were entering the labor force pushed it higher. Uh, but as the baby boomer generation is neared retirement age and continue to, to work through that phase, it's come down quite a bit. And much of this decline in sort of the trend level of labor force participation over this period can actually be explained by those demographic considerations. So with trend coming down, even though we haven't seen much of a recovery in participation coming out of the recession, it's still um, you know, actually very low by historical standards and hasn't come up all that much, this gap has been closing. We're starting to, to bring in people from, uh, from the sideline uh, of the labor market and starting to close this gap. And one way in which to see this is, again, in the unemployment rate on the right-hand side. The level of the unemployment rate is very close to what we would think of that long-run trend. These two things can't stay out of whack for too long. Um, as people come into the labor force, that puts pressure on the unemployment rate. Uh, so these two things being at their actual trend values is a pretty good sign that we're entering a phase in which uh, the resource gaps that, that were left in, during the recession are, are pretty much closed. And that has an effect on policy. Because at the current time, the ultimate aim of monetary policy is to finish closing those gaps, get us back to a, a state of full employment. And the way the Fed can do that is we can alter interest rates and we can change aggregate demand. We can sort of uh, give in incentives for households to change their patterns of spending or firms to change their patterns of investment. Uh, but when we do that, we have to keep in mind that we're always constrained by those forces that are outside of our control, kind of those things that are baked into the CBO's estimate of potential. Things like labor force demographics, uh, like the effective capital stock that's in place, and productivity. Uh, Monetary policy can do very little to affect the trend growth rate of the economy, but it can, in the short run, impact the actual rate of growth. So with that in mind, the, the Fed operates under a dual mandate uh, set down by Congress for us to achieve two, two pillars, price stability and full employment. Now, price stability is actually a very easy thing to measure for us. We have an objective or an inflation target, which is 2% for personal consumption expenditures inflation. And currently, we're a little bit below that target. So on this, on this measure, at least, we're not quite where we should be. Uh, the second pillar here, full employment, that one's a little bit more difficult because you have to have a measure of what potential is. Uh, so it's a little bit more uncertain, and it can change over time. But currently, uh, most people think that this range of 4.7 to 5% on the unemployment rate is about consistent with full employment. And we are smack dab in the middle of that range. Uh, through December. 
So we have a situation where on one objective, we're very close to being where we ought to be, and on the other, we're not quite there yet. And so that raises a question of sort of what's the optimal um, path to be uh, proceeding on for policy. Uh, one way in which to see this is if you take a look at the, the Federal Open Market Committee's summary of economic projections. So every quarter, uh, they release these projections for GDP growth, the unemployment rate, and inflation, as well as the federal funds rate. And the exercise that the members of the committee are asked to do is basically, given your um, understanding of what you think optimal policy should be, what do you think these variables will do over the next two or three years? And then they ask them a further question is sort of beyond the policy horizon. In the longer run, what are the levels that you think these variables should be tending to? So if you look at these longer run estimates, they can give you a good sense of what the committee kind of views as full employment. So for, the, for instance, the unemployment rate here, you can see there's a range because there are many members of the committee. But if you look at the median estimate, which is this red line here, that's very close to where we are today, uh, which you can see if the, the number for 2016 is actually slightly below that. Now, going forward, the committee expects the unemployment rate to be a little bit below its longer run level. Now, the reason for that is we are still below our inflation target. Inflation has not quite gotten back to that 2% level. It's closer to 1.4, 1.5%. And so running an economy where we're putting upward pressure on wages by having the labor market tighten a little bit more, we'll, we'll also put upward pressure on prices and inflation should start to tend back towards its long run target. Now you can see that embodied in the committee's expectations for the federal funds rate over the next several years. So the, here they're asked to sort of give what they think the federal funds rate should be at year end. So currently, we've had two increases from the zero lower bound. So we're right around that range between 0.5 and 0.75%. Uh, you can see that the committee expects by the end of next year to be somewhere between 1% and 2%, but only gradually get back up to that longer run rate, which they would think of as the neutral federal funds rate of about 3%. So this is just another uh, depiction of sort of the notion that the data suggests that we're getting very close to being uh, at full employment. With inflation a little bit low, the economy should run a little bit hot for a little while longer to bring that closer to target. That's why the federal funds rate is expected to be slightly below its longer run rate. But as inflation starts to head upwards, you'll see the federal funds rate move in that direction as well. So let me end there, hand it over to Rick. Give you a really good sense of sort of where the overall image of where the U.S. economy is headed at this point, and um, it's sort of my job coming after Scott gave you the sort of sanguine sense of that we're going to continue to see the kind of recovery we've been seeing for some time, maybe with a slight amount of acceleration this year. For me to take all the wind out of the room and tell you about Illinois and Chicago and basically be kind of like the really, really depressing voice in the room. So um, what, what my goal is, is I want to talk to you sort of in this context, sort of how does Illinois and Chicago perform? What, what does it have as an implication for real estate, particularly in Chicago? Um, and to give you some sense of sort of like what are different, what's different about Illinois and Chicago that might make it um, not necessarily benefit as much from some of the conditions that Scott has talked about in his full of a sense. So 
one of the things I was also reminded of is, is uh, by tradition, I've always told a joke when I've been at this uh, program. Uh, problem is, is I've done this program too many times, so I've run out of all my economist jokes. Um, so now I'm going to have to recycle one, which is basically goes like this. Um, always remember, a person becomes an economist when they realize they don't have quite enough personality to be either an accountant or an actuary. All right. Um, okay. So. Let's start with Illinois. Um, so the first thing you should realize with Illinois, and this is a familiar theme that I've used in the past, is the state has consistently been underperforming. Uh, we underperformed both during the recession and we've underperformed coming out during the recovery. Um, unemployment rate has been higher in Illinois than it has been not only within the U.S., but also within much of the Midwest, and we've had slower job growth. Um, the big question for Illinois is, is, is does our poor fiscal condition uh, put such a weight on the state that that's maybe is part of what's causing this underperformance? And then what's the effect of that on sort of municipalities and on terms of localities since they are simply is a contagion effect that simply by being in Illinois, they're somehow tarred by this sort of poor fiscal condition. The easiest way for me to show you Illinois' economic performance is really to look at employment recovery or the lack of. Um, so the first column is the number of jobs that were lost in Illinois during the Great Recession by sector, all right, and for the state as a whole. The second column are the jobs that have been recovered during this period of recovery. And the third column is the recovery rate, or the percentage of those jobs that have been recovered. So if you look at Illinois in total, the good news is we've recovered 116% of the jobs we lost during the recession. So we're you know, above where we were. The bad news is when you look at the individual sectors in Illinois, and particularly as they would apply to Chicago. So as you can see, finance, insurance, and real estate, the fire sector, is really important, obviously, to the metro economy. As you can see, for Illinois at this point, it's still losing jobs, all right? Um, we've seen no recovery. We're actually still losing jobs in finance, insurance, and real estate. And this is in sharp contrast to what's happened in the nation, where that recovery rate's 114.5%. Um, so Illinois is clearly moving in a different direction. The other sector that's particularly important for Chicago is professional and business services. And we've had a relatively robust recovery, and that really drives Chicago's economy. So we're at 199.6% recovery in terms of jobs. But again, that's below the U.S. average for professional and business services. And the fact that all these numbers in terms of recovery rates are in red suggests that we've underperformed the U.S. across every major category of sort of job growth coming out of this recession. Um, so we, have, we just haven't been making up ground at the same pace as everybody else has. So the problem is, is so you say, what's different about Illinois? Well, you know, as in the past, I've talked about the fiscal condition of the state. Um, and the problem is, is every year that I come and talk about this, I think like, well, maybe this year we will actually will have made some progress in sort of solving this problem. And yet every year I basically come back with the same depressing message. Um, the first thing is the state has not had a, a complete full year budget for two years. Um, this hasn't gone unnoticed. Um, our credit rating is the worst in the country. Um, on average, when we issue debt at this point, we're issuing about 160 basis points above a AAA spread. So it has real costs involved in terms of when we're trying to go to market for our bonds. Um, the debt also is important is it's not just the pension debt. That gets most of the attention. But it's also the fact that we've been running a structural budget deficit since 2001. So if you just look at what the state of Illinois spends versus what we take in, the estimated gap is about $13 billion per year that we're off in terms of just regular budgeting practice. And one of the 
Good things is there's a, the um, Institute for Government and Public Affairs at the University of Illinois has been doing a fiscal futures project. I'm going to show you a lot of what their results in terms are, in terms of both measuring the size of the gap and also what the strategies might be if you wanted to close that gap over the next decade. So the first thing you have to look at is just let's isolate first the pension gap, all right? So this is state and local combined pension debt for Illinois and our neighboring states. And the first thing that should jump out at you is, is the funded ratio, this, the third column. So if you look at the funded ratio, Illinois has the worst funded ratio of any of the states in the, in the region. Um, even Michigan, which is arguably was in a recession really for um, well over a decade, um, has almost a 67% funded ratio. Um, if you look at the debt per household, that's the number that tends to scare people a lot. Because for Illinois, it's $29,000 per household is the debt, just the pension debt. All right, so now here comes the even better news story. So if I haven't depressed you yet, I'm going to suggest to you that this number is probably significantly understated. Um, so this is how you get to the estimate of the 29,000, right, which is if you assume that the pension assets are receiving a 7.89% return right now, which is, is probably somewhat optimistic, most people would suggest, um, that's how you get to this 29,000 per household. It also suggests that when you look at the total you know, state and local resources, total state and local um, revenues, it's 3.8% of state and local revenue. So that sounds like a somewhat manageable problem. But what if you do a different experiment and you change the rate of return to something that's more risk-free? So for, the example, for this example, what we've done is, is, is drop it to a 3% rate of return. What does that do to what our funded ratios are? Well, it drops to 23%, all right? Um, at that point, you're also the household debt per household goes up to $78,000 per household. And it would take 10% of state and local revenues to close that gap. Um, so if you drop just any of the rate of return assumptions, you're going to suggest that we're actually much, much worse off in terms of the pension liability going forward. Okay, so how do you make that up? Well, this is a great figure that the Wall Street Journal published recently, and they showed you part of the problem is, is you just start trying to get higher rates of return, but that inherently takes you into riskier and riskier investments. So I would suggest that in 1995, I would have wanted to have been the investment manager for the state's pension portfolio, because all I would have to do is show up for lunch and go home, because all I had to do was put 100% of it in bonds, and then my day was done, right? The problem is, is by 2000 and, you know, by 2015, as you can see, you have this whole stack of investments that you have to do to get a 7.5% return. You know, everything from bonds to U.S. large caps to U.S. small caps to non-U.S. equity to um, real estate to private equity. And what is important there is to look at the bottom line, which is the standard deviation to get that 7.5%. You're introducing a whole lot of risk into that portfolio. And so chasing that kind of level of return is going to become harder and harder over time because it's a much more complex complex investment strategy that you're going to have to follow to sort of maintain even that 44% gap, all right, that 44% funded level going forward. Okay, so the University of Illinois, I told you, has this fiscal futures project. And one of the things they did in their report in December was they had this great quote from Will Rogers, which is, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, all right? Um, so their first argument for Illinois is that's probably where we should start, all right, is just stop making the problem worse. And so what their analysis does is it takes all the funds that the state of Illinois spends, it comes up with estimates of sort of, if you assume that we maintain sort of current structure in terms of spending, current revenue 
restructure what happens to the state's budget going forward. And what they projected is, is basically we would run about $14 billion per year gap. This is just the operating budget gap um, for the next five years, um, which obviously is not sustainable, and that's outside of pensions. The legacy liabilities, the pension liabilities on top of that would be an additional $174 billion. And we also have roughly unpaid bills right now, about $10 billion um, on the books. So how would you solve this? Well, the state of Illinois, um, the University of Illinois decided to do something. They looked at what are the usual features that people describe, and could you close the gap over the next decade if you did some of these things? So these are the options that are out there. First, a spending cut of 2% for all discretionary spending in the state budget. Second would be an income tax rate hike to 4.75% on the personal side, 665 on the corporate side. Um, expand the income tax by 10%, primarily by taxing retiree income. Um, increase the sales tax base by 15% by taxing a host of personal services that currently aren't taxed. And then hope you get some sort of supply-side growth. So you get a half a percent faster growth in personal income than projected over the next decade. And the problem is, so if you look at this sort of smorgasbord of ideas and you say, like, well, a couple of these I think are good ideas, well, to actually close the deficit, what they estimate is you have to do all of them. All right. I mean, you have to do all of them for 10 years. Um, that would get us back to zero, um, which suggests, again, sort of the magnitude of the problem. Um, and that doesn't even address the current bill backlog. That would just make the budget structurally um, stable going forward and would suggest that we make pension payments going forward that would get us back to 90% funded by um, 2045 in terms of that. But that's the magnitude of the adjustments you have to make. Um, so what they suggest is what we need is a grand plan, and you also need the discipline to say you're going to stay on that grand plan really for the next decade um, to sort of close the problem. So how about Chicago? Um, well, if you look at Chicago, the good news is, is economic growth definitely picked up in 2015 and into 2016. A lot of this had to do with a real strength in both real estate and in business and professional services. Um, the concern at this point in real estate is that some of the sectors that were strongest during this period of time might be starting to get a little long in the tooth. They might be starting to fade a little bit. But the big question for Chicago is the same as Illinois, which is there's a massive fiscal uh, headwind. Um, you know, Chicago's pension are just as poorly funded, if not worse, uh, in worse condition than the state of Illinois. And it still has lots of structural problems in terms of other governments, particularly the Chicago public school system, which arguably is really crippled at this point. So that makes it really hard. There's significant fiscal headwinds which make investments in Chicago harder to do. So here's Chicago's recent GDP growth. The good news, as you can see, 13 was a bad year with the darker bars, but 14 and 15 were really strong, and we had almost 3% GDP growth that was estimated in 15. So the city really was starting to snap back in terms of the economy. Um, the problem is, is, again, if you look at some of these sectors, some of the indicators going into this year suggest some of that growth is going to start to slow. So this is something I took out of Cranes, and what it shows you is you know, one of the really big boom areas in this was apartment construction, and it continues to be a real source of strength for Chicago. But if you can look at going into 17, it's suggesting that kind of residential construction kind of peaked out in 16, and the expectation is for it to sort of drift down a little to in 17. Still be at a high level, but slower than what we were seeing in 16. They expect somewhat of a stronger situation in the non-residential side for Chicago. But there's some estimates that also suggest that some of the non-residential product is also getting close to being overbuilt too, suggesting that sort of future product is, might be a little bit harder to come by. 
If you look at what sort of surveys say about Chicago, um, I always like the um, Urban Land Institute PricewaterhouseCoopers annual survey of the U.S. market, and they you know put Chicago where they pretty much traditionally place, which is kind of right in the middle, um, 26th market in terms of the U.S. at this point. Um, they suggest that it's been improving over time. Um, and they cite the normal things that everybody in this room knows, which is Chicago's real strength recently has been this move, particularly of headquarters um, and technology firms into the city, and with that, bringing millennials and high-educated folks into the urban core. I mean, Chicago's real estate strength is definitely defined by its urban core at this point more than anything else, and really almost all the building that's gone on has reflected that sort of dynamic. Um, so you have to suggest to yourself, you know, what's going to make that dynamic continue to, you know, flourish? What are the policies that can make that um, strengthen in the future? One of the other things that's also they cite for Chicago is the fact that it's a very stable market. Um, you know, we tend not to be quite the boom and bust market of, say, some of the coastal cities. Um, and you've seen that sort of in prices. Um, you know, Chicago's Another advantage Chicago has is it's a relatively cheap place. Um, you know, on, on almost any estimate, if you look at sort of what a trophy property costs in Chicago, it's significantly discounted to what it would cost you for a similar property in New York or L.A. or San Francisco. When they look forward for Chicago's real estate market for 2017, they suggest that apartments are still the top. And the reason for this, again, is this idea of the movement of millennials, particularly into the city, who favor rental properties as, a, as sort of what their preferred product is. Um, so they continue to demand increasing rental property, and they're also pushing up rental rates at this point. Um, industrial, in part because there wasn't a lot of industrial construction over this cycle. So there's a sense in which industrial is lagging coming out of this particular period, so there's a gain there. Then for sale um, housing, and then the lagging periods are retail, office, and hotels. And that's really what I'm going to conclude with, is looking at a little bit those three sort of lagging areas and, and suggest maybe why they um, may also fall off a bit in 2017. So first, you know, what are the downside risks for the entire sector? Well, first, um, this part of the recovery is getting a little bit long in the tooth. Um, recoveries don't die of old age, um, but there's also a sense in which some of the underlying things that drove them in the beginning start to sort of fall away to an extent. Um, higher financing costs, as Scott has indicated, there's clearly a bias in which interest rates could potentially be moving up. Um, one of the open questions is how sensitive are people to extremely low financing to be able to do deals? Um, the other thing that's going to also always be an open question is under what conditions are you going to be able to get financing and sort of how that's going to be perceived both by lenders and by the regulatory community. Um, so those issues have to do uh, have to be looked at. And then certain types of real estate over the last few years um, seem to have a whole lot in the pipeline. So if you look at both office and hotels, for example, um, there's been a lot of construction in Chicago. Um, while currently some of the absorption looks pretty good, you'd have to be a little nervous if for some reason people look at Chicago as a less favorable place to invest in say, the longer duration, because it's going to be harder to attract new tenants into that market. And then the last one for retail, which everybody all knows too well, is, you know, we, we really significantly overbuilt retail in the U.S. Um, E-commerce has, has already put brick-and-mortar retail under real pressure at this point. And you saw that in this year's 
Christmas sales. So, you know, when the holiday sales came out, everything online did really, really well. If you were Macy's, you did really, really poorly. And there was an interesting article actually this week which suggested that now, you know, if you're a mall, um, these anchor tenants are now the albatrosses in your structure. I mean, you don't want the Macy's and the, you know, big, big guys who used to be the key factors in why you wanted to have a mall in the first place, um, just because of the changing dynamics of how consumers do things. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of specifics. Um, the office market. Right now, Chicago's office vacancy rate is the lowest in a decade. We're down to about 11%, which is really good news. The problem is, is that Chicago has always been a market where it's been characterized by cannibalization, particularly in the Class A space. So, you know, one of the jokes always is as soon as you see a Class A building going up, it's which law firm is moving from its current Class A space to the new Class A space, right? Um, so there's a sense in which you necessarily are just sort of shuffling the same players around town. You're not getting a whole lot of new investment. The tech firms introduced a new environment that way because they were new investment. They weren't just the same companies changing space across the same location. Um, office development was super strong in 2016, 4.5 million square feet under construction. Um, not surprisingly, the sublease market is growing. Um, the shadow market is obviously um, you know, starting to pick up as you've had this other sort of new construction come online. Net absorption has been positive since 2011, which is really good news for Chicago, which again suggests that we're not overbuilt necessarily in this market, but that we may be getting to sort of closer to an equilibrium. And that's also really being reflected in um, lease rates. Um, lease rates have been going up across all classes within Chicago, and you've had some, you know, like at the Class A market, uh, building under construction right now is asking $46 per square foot, um, which is, you know, pretty robust for the Chicago market. So office, again, the fear is, is maybe you're at the top of the cycle or at top of the peak. So that's the um, issue maybe going forward. If you look at housing, the sweet spots, again, it's still multifamily, and again, it's the dynamics of the millennials. It's the product that best fits the, the, the uh, interests of young um, urban professionals. The advantage, again, is prices are still relatively low to other urban markets um, for very nice product in terms of that. But And Chicago has also not seen rapid price appreciation over this period of time. So this is the Case-Shiller Index, um, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. The Chicago recovery in prices is the blue line. The U.S. recovery is the red line. As you can see, we have not had anywhere near the recovery in terms of the house prices um, that the U.S. has. Um, and so it suggests, again, that we're certainly not overpriced right now. In the, in the U.S. market, and we haven't had sort of the run in terms of prices um, that other cities have had that are now well back to where they were before the recession or above where they were um, before the recession. In retail, again, you know, um, lots of oversupply. Um, good locations are still doing really, really well, but it has to be really selective in terms of where the investment is. Um, you know, the significant overbuilding really occurred before the recession. I mean, one of the things I was joking with somebody before um, we got up here was I said that, you know, I live out in the suburbs, and during that time before the recession, I mean, everybody was putting up some sort of a strip shopping center, right? Um, and it was really unclear what was going to fill any of that space other than like hot yoga places or, you know, other sorts of, you know, sort of odd oddities, right? So you're seeing more and more of these places where it's, it's just not like an anchor tenant. It's not really clear, you know, the bed, bath,
Baths and Beyonds are gone, the other stores that used to soak up a lot of that real estate space, bookstores, all that stuff, they're all gone. So it's harder to sustain that stuff going forward. Um, the good news, as Scott has suggested, is, is that you know, the consumer has been really part of the good news story here. And the consumer looks poised again to be a significant part of the growth of this year's uh, economy. And so therefore, that obviously is going to benefit retail. It's just a question of does it benefit brick and mortar retail in terms of um, its behavior in terms of there. So, um, and last is hotels. So this is the one probably most people are most familiar with, which is um, Chicago's gone through a real hotel building boom over this period of time. Um, clearly, this has been well matched by the sort of the rise in convention activity and, and uh, tourism activity in Chicago. Chicago's really ramped up its tourist um, business, so that's all been good. We've often, it's, there's lots of different product that's opened at this point in Chicago, so you have everything from boutique hotels. But you also have uh, just a ton of hotel rooms that are going to come online in the next several years, um, particularly the new um, Marriott at uh, McCormick Place, which is 1,200 rooms. Um, so when you bring that amount of, of sort of product into the market, um, you're going to have a period of time where it's going to put a lot of pressure just on vacancy rates um, in the existing Chicago hotel market. So that'll be an issue going forward. So hotels could be one of those sectors that could be you know, somewhat challenged in terms of the future. Um, so with that, thank you for your time and attention. We're happy to take any questions, or at least Scott's happy to take any questions. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be taking a cab back to the bank. But uh, so, anyway, thank, thank you very much. So. Don't be shy. Yeah. <laughs> um, going back to, to Scott's, because I think we've had enough of Debbie Donner. Um, going back to Scott, um, uh, when you're talking about the, the uh, uh, kind of a increase in urban, urban, uh, urban growth, are we continuing to see a reduction? If you, if you look at... Um, uh, urban, suburban, exurban, and farm. Okay, we've always we've seen for many, many, many years the flight from farm. Is is the is is that continued to at a steady pace, or has it continued to increase? And the reason I'm asking is, you know, the, we we continue to see depressed property values in more of the hinter areas. Uh, people that are are underemployed, uh, unemployed, uh, the, the more dissatisfied people. Uh, is it? Part, uh, partly because of the flight being amped up into uh, the urban centers? That's a very, very good question. I'm not sure I can answer it directly. Um, there is definitely that, that trend still ongoing, almost certainly. Um, <clears throat> see how I can spin this, unless you want to take a shot at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, part of what you're seeing right now is, at least in some of the measurements of like where real estate value is, um, being transit related is clearly getting a big push in terms of, of sort of like where you're going to get the best return on real estate. And that's simply showing that, again, connection, particularly to urban areas, is really important. And you're even seeing in terms of real estate value, distance from the city is starting to become more and more of a significant factor. So for a period of time, that real estate, that gradient, price gradient, really dissolved because all of a sudden, if you lived in the suburbs, it was the distance to Schaumburg that mattered to you. Now, if the companies move back into downtown, think of if you were McDonald's and you're Oak Brook, all of a sudden now, 
being on a train line, if you live in the suburbs back into Chicago, is going to matter a lot to you in terms of that. And you're not going to want the exurban location or moving further and further out to the, you know, the farm because, again, you're then on a 60-minute commute. So, um, and you're seeing, and the, and the investment in urban places is not just a Chicago phenomenon. You're seeing this nationwide at this point. I mean, there's a, there's a clear demand um, for, for people, again, to, to prefer urban locations um, because that's where the businesses want to be at this point. <clears throat> you comment on the, uh, to Chicago, the sluggishness in the uh, housing recovery. Yeah. You know, maybe the three or four factors that really are yeah, I mean, you know, part of it for Chicago is, is again, you know, we're, we're a net out-migration uh, place now at this point. So there's not a lot of new people moving in to sort of bid up demand. And so, therefore, it's not uniform. I mean, in the sense of there's clearly markets within Chicago, sub-markets that have done quite well in terms of recovery. But overall, it's just, it's, you know, there's, there's you know, too much supply chasing, you know, uh, too little demand at this point. Where in other markets like San Francisco or D.C., we've seen prices go above where they were pre-recession, you know, it, it's clearly is a situation of you just have lots of immigration, lots of people coming into the city, um, and so that it just drives the market, and we just haven't had that. I mean, it's not it's, it's displacement is the election to rent versus own. I think that that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. That's really a good question. So the, the question was like, if, if you are, is also displacement because people now prefer renting over owning? I mean, I, I, I can't comment directly on that, but I think that one of the things a lot of people are really observing very closely is what's the behavior of the millennials, right? Um, so the idea is, is are they completely wedded to only renting the rest of their lives, right, um, and never owning a product? And are they completely wedded to urban environments and raising their family in urban environments? And there's been conflicting evidence on both sides of this. Some people have suggested that once they have kids, they have a preference for the suburbs just like previous generations, but because they wed later and have children later, the cycle's been delayed going forward. Um, so it's going to bear watching, but the evidence not clear one way or the other. So. It's not How's clear that it's any different in Chicago either than yeah. other places. Yeah. How's the data tracked on the net migration? Because you hear these rumors that like, you know, from Chicago, from an urban core, right. and a millennial attraction that... You know, Chicago attracts a, a tremendous amount of millennials, mm -hmm. you know, from obviously the neighboring, you know, four-year colleges that are within the regional area. So you have these millennials just, you know, running here for the opportunity to work in an urban core. Yeah. But are you seeing net migration and population loss in the taxpayer in Illinois? Because right. are we seeing that older generation saying, okay, we're going to still keep our original family home, but we're going to move to a more tax-friendly environment? Yeah, um so yeah, so you're, you're, that's a really good question too. But um, so it has. There's two dimensions of it. One is clearly that you are having some out migration among baby boomers in retirement. Now it's unclear whether they're doing that for tax reasons or simply because they like warmer climates, right? So it's always hard in this analysis to tease out people who moved to Florida or Arizona just because they would move to Florida and Arizona anyway. Um, so that, that's a harder thing. In terms of the migration, also, it's, it's a really nuanced thing because in many cases what you're seeing is the migration that's coming in is well-educated and higher 
paying jobs. Uh, the migration that's moving out tends to be the opposite. So what you've had is a composition effect change. So some people have suggested that if you look at the Midwest right now, one example of a successful quote unquote Midwest city is Pittsburgh, right? Pittsburgh has shrunk significantly in terms of population. It's a fraction of its former size, but it's a much wealthier place today um, because what it's tried to do is, is create an industry mix and a wage mix that's much higher in a profile. And some have suggested that that's Chicago's path forward. We're never going to be a city that's going to have explosive population growth going forward. So what we have to look at is the composition of the population, the composition of industries. <laughs> you could throw a lot of this out the window, bro. <laughs> you know, the, the, the volatility, uncertainty, I, 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 when I was putting this together, I was hesitant to even put up anything on business investment at this point because I don't think you can really make a business investment forecast at this point until you have a much better picture of what's going to happen on the fiscal policy side. Uh, the the short-term forces, they're not going anywhere. I mean, they, they aren't really affected by these longer-term issues. And we've seen weak business investment now for two straight years. So whether that was because of uncertain policy uncertainty before and now it gets all resolved and there's a, a burst of, of activity, that, that, that's possible. But there are also these longer-run forces that are really holding that down at the moment. So you're, it's going to be pushing against something that, that wants you know, to be a weak situation. Yeah, economists have always had the luck of, well, we really don't know what, what's going to happen. We always talk about animal spirits, right, <laughs> which was you know, sort of the original idea. And you increasingly see articles now that mention animal spirits as being part of what you're trying to figure out, which is just a behavioral thing, right? So do, do people feel differently and more confident? And that, that's just obviously, you know, we'd love to be able to quantify it. These uncertainty indexes are probably as close as anybody's gotten to trying to do these things. But there's this, there's this trade-off because you see consumer confidence very yeah. high, small yeah. business sentiment now is very high as well. All, all these confidence measures, they've all gone up, but you haven't seen anything in the hard data yet. Yeah. So uh, there's a trade-off. Um, you, you may very well see that reflected, but there's a timing issue. And until some of the uncertainty gets resolved, you know, that could be much later than the, you know, the current quarter. We have time for one more question. Anybody? If not, please thank our speakers. Thank you. We hope to see all of you here next month. Good day.